0: this episode of world changing ideas is brought to you by verizon the network america relies on
1: i'm taled Bizram, and you're listening to fast break your weekly source of inspiration and motivation in these uncertain times this week we're taking a look at the criminal justice system how one organization is reimagining the role of prosecutors and how another is helping train formerly incarcerated individuals to find new job opportunities. This is your Fast Break. As we've seen over the past two months now, protesters are still hitting the streets to demonstrate against police brutality and racial injustice. There have been several calls to defund the police and address mass incarceration. My guest today is a former assistant district attorney in the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office in Boston. Disappointed by the efforts to reform the criminal justice system, he decided to test out a different method. And just a note, even though he's on vacation, he drove 15 miles to find a spot with decent Wi-Fi to join us on the show. So you may hear some ambient noise from the cafe that he found. Adam Foss is the founder and executive director of Prosecutor Impact. Welcome to the show, Adam.
2: Thanks, it's uh, really nice to be here with you.
1: Adam, what inspired you to start Prosecutor Impact?
2: I don't know that it was as much an inspiration as it was the next logical step in my quest to, to solve the problem that I saw as a, as a prosecutor on the front lines of the buildup of mass incarceration. That didn't really come until I was working with young people I had learned through because of what was happening the Supreme Court around around adolescent brain development, and when I started like picking away at that and learning about young people, I was like, "Oh, I'm I'm just doing this wrong." And since then, I've been sort of like unpacking all of the things that I didn't know. Ultimately, coming all the, coming back to trauma is is like the most negligent deprivation of my education was like no understanding of trauma, how it affects victims of crime, how it affects Uh, people who are committing crime, how it manifests in violence. And, And here we are trying to manage violence in communities by inflicting more trauma on people. It's something that I think people can really like get their minds around and be like, oh, shit. Yeah, that's that's not okay. Like we wouldn't let brain surgeons do that.
1: Just to fill in the gaps for those of us who might not know, what's the current role of a prosecutor and how are they the most powerful actors in the criminal justice system?
2: Sure. The the current role of any prosecutor in this country is uh, we are the connective tissue between what the police do in the streets and the rest of the criminal justice system. While there is a, a tremendous amount of conversation and unrest, frankly, right now around police reform, and it's something that obviously needs to happen in lots of ways, people don't really enter the quicksand that is the criminal justice system until a person makes a decision and that person is the prosecutor. The prosecutor is... Uh, vested with the power of the state to decide uh, who gets charged with what crimes and those decisions at the very beginning of the case dictate how that case will live through the rest of its life in the criminal justice system and how it will impact the people who are ensnared in the in the facts in that case, whether they are a victim of a crime or the person who is being charged with uh, offending uh, or committing the crime.
1: And what are the Major problems that district attorneys' offices have that impact new prosecutors.
2: A few things. Uh, one is an abject lack of metrics or data to let people know that the decisions that are making are actually commensurate with the outcomes that we are seeking, which are safety and justice and fairness and making victims whole. Number two is is a culture, uh, a tradition of young prosecutors not having the amount of discretion that they feel safe using to, to make informed decisions about best outcomes. And three, I think, it is uh, this blurred line between our relationship between the police, who in many ways are important members of our team and that nothing happens unless they arrive at a call for distress, but also they're still citizens of the communities that we serve and therefore are people who are required to follow the law. And when they don't, it's the same prosecutors who are supposed to be theoretically uh, holding them accountable, the same way that we hold any citizen accountable for committing a crime.
1: Yeah, and your website also mentions the kind of lack of training and, and experience, and then they're thrown into these really high-pressure environments. Is is that right?
2: Yeah, and, and and if I didn't mention that one up front, it's be, it's just because it's the one that sort of like I sit with all of the time, which is the amazing amount of discretion power and responsibility we put into a worker who has just started without the requisite amount of uh training and experience that we would assume would come with that relinquishment of power and discretion to this person but also taking people who are extremely privileged and that we get to go to college we get to go to law school we come out of law school we get a job and thrusting them into the communities of people who we've never met we've never experienced a moment in their lives we have very little understanding of, of what is happening in those communities. And so that is the overarching umbrella of the problem, is that disconnect between the reality of, of what we're being asked to do and our, our preparedness to do that.
1: And how does Prosecutor Impact tackle those issues?
2: We We tackle those issues in a few ways. The most core way that we tackle the problem is by accelerating those experiences. And so one way that we do this is just recognizing that for many prosecutors who are starting in their first few weeks or months of a DA's office, they've never stepped foot inside of a jail or a prison. And if you to- said to an objective person, I go to work every day and I send people to a place that I've never stepped foot inside of, that objective person would probably be like, huh? What? That's, that's ridiculous. And when, you, yeah. and when you think about what happens to people when they go to jail and prison, it is incumbent on prosecutors to experience that. And so really, uh, experiential learning is, is the core of our work. Um, but we also give prosecutors uh, the opportunity to um, work as a team, to ask each other how they wrestle with certain cases or crimes, uh, how they think about the future of this work, how, how they might tackle a problem that has, is, is, uh, up until that point, been intractable in their community. And the, lo- and the last way, and, and sort of like the uh, least sexy way is just giving prosecutors uh, a level of education around um, really the social determinants, the, the root cause of, of crime, so that we have a better opportunity to prevent them from happening again.
1: And Adam, can you tell us a little bit about your own work as a prosecutor and what motivated you to pursue that line of work?
2: So I was motivated to pursue being a prosecutor because, because of the problem, uh, because of sort of like recognizing um, the requisite uh, unfairness in the criminal justice system, recognizing the poor outcomes for people who look like me, people who come from uh, communities that I care about, people who have been marginalized, and not just from the lens of people who uh, are suffering the brutality of, of our addiction to mass incarceration, but also to recognize that survivors of crime, victims of crime, uh, aren't being treated well either. The desire to go into prosecution as opposed to public defense was was the confluence of uh, observation of this problem and the acknowledgement and recognition that uh, to have the most amount of power to do something about that, um, I had to be a prosecutor. And my work quickly turned from only trying to do the thing that I've been taught to do, which was holding accountable the people who were identified as defendants in my cases, and really adopting a more holistic view of all of the individuals all the human beings who were involved in my cases and the com- and and opening the aperture to see that it wasn't just the victim and the person who was responsible for harming them. It was the communities of people that were around them that also needed quote-unquote representation.
1: And can you explain what you mean by saying that the profession of prosecution is ripe for reinvention?
2: I mean a couple things by that. One thing I just mean about that is like it's, it's time for a refresh. We've never done it, and so let's do it. The other thing that I, I mean by that it's right for reinvention is that for many years now, but perhaps uh, the most that I've ever seen in my lifetime, the people who come to our doorstep every single day as survivors of crime, or as people who are perpetrating harm in their communities are taking to the streets and demanding that uh, we reinvent the system because the outcomes have failed them. Mm. And whether we call that hashtag defund the police or some other quippy phrase, what, what ultimately it is, are people saying you cannot rule us in this way anymore without doing something fundamentally different that is going to yield better outcomes for our people?
1: What kind of incentives and metrics are you advocating for now beyond measuring you know how many cases a prosecutor wins?
2: Along with conviction rates and weight, like get rid of that. that. Those are garbage metrics that uh, were created, I think, just out of, sh- out of just a poor relationship with data and data systems and the only sort of like tangible thing that we can count. There aren't many ways that we conceived of, certainly in the, in the history and tradition of prosecution that made somebody a good prosecutor that didn't lead to this paradigm of the trial lawyer who's winning the, the hardest trials and sending people away for the longest time. I don't believe that the vast majority of prosecutors see that as being actually an actual metric that, that yields public safety uh, or fairness or equity. Uh, but it is the one that we've resorted to in the in the absence of anything else. Uh, what I'm suggesting uh, and what others are suggesting is that there have to be a whole new set of metrics to define what it means to be a good prosecutor, to define what it means to make a community safe, to define what it means to hold someone accountable. If I walked into a, a classroom of college freshmen and I asked them, you know, what, what makes you feel safe in your day to day growing up, they wouldn't say I felt safe because... I knew the police were out there locking everybody up that was doing bad things in my neighborhood. They would say things like, and and I'm not assuming, I've I've asked this question to thousands of college students. They would say things like, I felt safe because I had a roof over my head. I sat down with my family every night to eat. Uh, I never had to worry about my mother or my father's employment status. Uh, Mm -hmm. I had a school to go to that was nice. I had things to do after school. What if instead of measuring uh how well a prosecutor tried a case and won it what if you measured the prosecutors using their power to uh, support people in augmenting those uh, metrics in their lives and so if you think about it you know if a young person comes in for possessing a firearm and you ask them sort of like the number of hours that they're participating in those activities how many hours are you sleeping in your own bed how many hours are you going to school how many hours are you engage in, in pro-social activity after school uh, and the prosecutor, by using all the resources at our disposal, was focused on increasing the hours in that young person's life, uh, which you can do while holding them accountable, then why wouldn't, why wouldn't we at least try that as, as an experiment to say, this is a good prosecutor, not because he's being lenient or not because she's being soft, but because we know that this is a better way to get to safety than incarcerating this young person.
1: Um, Adam, in the wake of the deaths of, of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and the massive outcry over police brutality and racial injustice and mass incarceration, uh, what's your reaction been You know, when the protests started and what kind of effect have they had on prosecutor impact?
2: My reaction when they started was, uh, as a black man, uh, fury and anger that we're here again. There was also some cynicism around it because uh, as quickly and as widespread and, you know, sort of like intense as they became. We've been here many, many times before where the urgency of the United States around these issues is only as as long as somebody's social media feed. And so there was cautious optimism that uh, because of the isolation created by this horrible pandemic that we're all living through, it would be more difficult for people to look away from this problem. And to some extent, it has. What I'm impressed by uh, was the traffic that came to Prosecutor Impact because of the situation from prosecutors around the country saying, "Okay, now it's time uh, to really define who it is that we are. We do not want to be associated with the unmitigated killings of Black and brown people, Native people, the subjugation and marginalization of marginalized people, the mistreatment of people with mental health and other illnesses, we want to sort of like take this moment as the refresh of our legacy and build on it. And uh, if there is anything that looks like a silver lining coming out of any of this, it's the inspiration that uh, people are feeling this moment to do something different and having designed this company around the idea that, that we would have to sort of like build that urgency, build that culture uh, and having it, dropped on our doorstep, unfortunately, because of the, of the the lives that we had to lose to get here. I'm reluctant to call it a silver lining, but I do so with, with their spirit in mind that uh, there's a clarion call now for a different brand of prosecutor that is exciting to me.
1: Right. Well, it's been really interesting hearing about Prosecutor Impact, Adam. Thanks so much for coming on the show.
2: Thank you for having me and uh, love talking about this stuff and, and I'm really inspired by uh, the men and women who are doing this job, who have really dug their heels in, in this moment and stood up strong uh, and, and and are standing strong, because there are many more of us out here than there are of the old guard who continue to say that everything is fine.
0: This episode of World Changing Ideas is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home Internet. Find the plan that's right for you at Verizon.com.
1: There are 2.3 million people currently incarcerated in the U.S. Nearly one in three adults has a criminal record, according to the ACLU. A nonprofit called the Prison Policy Initiative analyzed the data and found that formerly incarcerated individuals are unemployed at a rate of over 27%. That's higher than the US unemployment rate at any given period in history, including the Great Depression. With me today to talk about a way to improve those numbers is Aidan McDonald from the Justice Through Code program at the Columbia University Center for Justice. Welcome to the show, Aidan.
3: Thank you
0: for having me, Talib.
1: And with him is a graduate of the program, Antoine. Welcome, Antoine.
0: Thank you for having me, Talib. It's great to be here.
1: How does the Justice Through Code program help address the crisis of mass incarceration?
0: When
3: formerly incarcerated individuals come home, such as myself, we're faced with a very difficult situation of reintegrating into society, well, having a very difficult time finding employment. Mm. Studies show that the most significant predictor of recidivism is post-release employment. And at Justice Through Code, we really work on getting people into sustainable careers where they're not just earning a low wage that in, in an unreliable job where they may... You know, not stay in that position for a very long time. But instead, we're focused on really getting people into long-term sustainable careers where there's opportunity for growth mm-hmm. and where they can feel fulfilled and where they can really work to challenge the negative stereotypes of the formerly incarcerated in the organizations that they're working with. And also as setting an example to others in society of what's possible when we provide resources and education to people that have normally been excluded from those opportunities.
1: Mm. So what's the backstory behind Justice Through Code?
3: Yeah, I think Justice Through Code in many ways was a response to a problem that I faced when coming home shortly after I returned home from spending four years in federal prison for my involvement in marijuana distribution. I found it incredibly difficult to find a job. I was lucky enough after a period of time to end up finding a home at the Center for Justice where I work now on Justice Through Code. And in my first months of working there, I spent a lot of time reflecting about how my ex- white privilege extended even to the experience of coming home, huh. knowing that for me as a white male with a criminal record, it's easier to find a job than a black male without a criminal record. and. I really felt like there was something that we could do about this at Columbia in redefining what's possible for formerly incarcerated individuals.
1: Sure. So Antoine, how did you first find out about Justice Through Code?
0: Well, Talib, you know, ironically, I just happened to be scrolling through Facebook one day and I came across a flyer, you know, speaking about the program, but I was really reluctant at first to apply because... You know, I've just been through so many things since coming home from incarceration. So many doors had already been slammed in my face. And you know, I've been working many low paying jobs with no income growth potential and no ability to acquire transferable skills. And so it made me very reluctant to apply. But, you know, I said to myself, I just kind of talked my way into applying because, you know, it, it had been, you know, 20 years since I had been in a classroom setting getting all all of these things. So I was definitely reluctant to do it in the beginning. But, you know, I'm definitely glad that I did.
1: What was the application process like, you know, on your end?
0: I felt the uh, application process wasn't difficult. What was difficult was coming out of my comfort zone, because one thing that many incarcerated individuals or formerly incarcerated individuals will tell you is that you're very guarded about your past. So Hmm. in my life personally, not many people know that I'm formerly incarcerated. I mean, because I've gone through justice through code, I'm very open with it now. But for many years, I had not been, you know, so you're very guarded. And some of the questions on the application ask you, you know, to tell your story, you know, tell certain things and At the time, I didn't have the ability to do that, to really get my story out because I had been in such a guarded position.
1: And Aidan, from your end, you know, how do you recruit or reach out to potential students?
0: One of the main ways
3: that we do is through our partner organizations in New York City. At the Center for Justice, we also run a prison education program where we have a partner where Columbia professors go into New York State prisons to teach four-credit college classes. And then we've also posted the application flyer on our email mailing list, as well as our social media. For this most recent cohort that's coming up in the fall, we've received just an incredible response um, from our small, I think, just over 1,000 followers on Instagram. We ended up having a million and a half impressions wow. of our application flyer, which I think really speaks to the need for a program like this. Well.
1: Since you mentioned it, let's talk a little bit about the fall semester. What, what's it going to look like, especially with, you know, virtual learning?
3: In some ways, we were lucky last semester because we had some period of time, a little under half of the semester, where we were exclusively remote. For the fall cohort, we'll be running what's called a high flex model. So we'll have the option of in-person classes pending that, you know, things don't change further as well as remote attendance.
1: Could you give a, an overview of the curriculum?
3: We're really focused on familiarizing our students with the different communication media that we use during the program. Um, we've really worked to design everything in our curriculum to consider the ultimate goal, which is to place people in career track positions within the technology sector. The first section of the course is devoted to the fundamentals of programming in Python. And then we cover time series, data analysis, APIs. And during the final section of the course, students complete a capstone software project. In addition to that, we're also very focused on giving students the opportunity to see the different career options that are available within the tech industry and hear from different industry leaders mm-hmm. so we have guest talks throughout the course where students are able to hear from these leaders and also ask them questions and get an idea of what different companies look like what does corporate culture look like in one place versus the other when students complete the course we pair them with different mentors we have a community partnership with google which actually antoine is a part of right now mm-hmm. where our students are able to work with mentors to kind of further develop their technical skills and really work on building projects that are meaningful to them and their mentors.
1: Very cool. Antoine, what's your experience been like? Can you tell us a little bit about the skills that you've learned?
0: Justice Through Code has had a tremendous impact on my life and it's change my perception of myself and my capabilities jtc provided me with an unimaginable support network uh we had another course dealing with uh job negotiation you know how to sell yourself to a job but actually you know put yourself in a position to negotiate the right salary the right position for yourself learning how to tell our stories because many of us or all of us have a unique story to tell, you know, with our experiences with incarceration and since we've returned to society. Having that support network gave me an opportunity to not only help myself, but also encourage me to help others. Learning Python, learning JavaScript, HTML, CSS, many of the other type of platforms that are available out there just gave a different meaning to my life. It's definitely been a great experience. It's like a new life because I've spent so many years of just being down, having been formerly incarcerated, not many opportunities coming along. And so now here is something that's put me on an upward trajectory that I couldn't even imagine when I first began the program.
1: That's amazing to hear. Now that you've graduated, Antoine, what types of employment are you pursuing?
0: What's really important to me is to be in a role where my technical skills will grow while at the same time allowing me the opportunity to work with others in an effort to diversify the tech sector. You know, African-Americans make up a very small portion in the tech sector. And so this gives me the opportunity to get a foot in the door And it allows me the opportunity to remove the negative stigma associated with formerly incarcerated individuals And it also breaks down racial barriers to say yes Here is a significant market out there right now You have an african-american right here and putting myself in a position to be a leader to show If this guy can do it right here, then everybody can do it
1: Totally Aiden, how have the recent protests for racial justice and the calls to address mass incarceration affected JTC?
3: I think that our population now is just galvanized and really just so disgusted at how different one's life can be just because of the color of their skin in our country. For the first time, we're really seeing a broad coalition of individuals from diverse backgrounds standing up and saying, this is enough. No more of this. And we want to be engaged in providing a solution to this problem and really doing the difficult work that's going to take many years to address these problems.
1: So in addition to the coding training that JTC provides, what kind of role can the tech industry play in taking action to dismantle systemic racism and discrimination?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think One of the first things to realize is that this isn't a problem that can be solved by any one industry nor any one person. Um, I think it's really about looking at these problems and building a broader coalition as we are with JTC and fomenting a discussion about what are the barriers to diverse workplaces? What does the workplace at a tech industry look like? Why is it that marginalized groups have a harder time finding employment in these places? The tech industry really needs to look at what commitment are we making, both from time, but also in resources to address these issues? Because it's not something that's, again, just going to be solved overnight, it really is going to take a committed effort of evaluating what those differences in resources, what inequities they create and how to address them.
1: Great. Antoine, is there anything you wanted to add on on any of that?
0: You know, everything that he mentioned is an issue that I've faced. Everyone that I know that are formerly incarcerated, they've faced these issues. I believe that justice through code and other programs like it and partnering with major companies out there is a big step towards accomplishing this goal. I really can't drive home enough that, you know, it's really important to remove the negative, negative stigma associated with formerly incarcerated individuals. There are many people that are incarcerated that have unimaginable skills. I've seen guys that could play in the NBA, and, you know, I've seen great artists who could have their paintings up in the Guggenheim, great lyricists. Anything that you can imagine, that's part of that pool of people that are coming home from incarceration. Once we've paid our debt to society, as people say, then it should end there. And programs like Justice Through Code, partnering with these individuals, giving them marketable skills to actually be able to compete in the workforce. It's very important. I'm just thankful that I came across the flyer, introducing me to Justice Through Code. You know, I, I I can't thank the program enough for everything that it's done for me and that it continues to do for me.
1: Well, best of luck with the fall semester and thank you both for coming on the show.
0: Thank you for having us, Talib. Um, very appreciative of this opportunity. Thank you.
3: Thank you for having us, Talib. Real pleasure to speak with you today.
1: That's it for this week. Fast Break was produced by Avery Miles. Be sure to check in with us next week for another roundup of helpful tips and creative ideas to stay positive throughout this challenging time. You can subscribe to Fast Break on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you like this show, please leave us a rating or a review. Thanks for joining us. I'm Talib Vizram.